0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Our guest today is Luke Timothy Johnson, who will probably be familiar to many Commonweal readers. He's a longtime contributor to the magazine and the author of our religion book Notes column for many years. Luke, of course, is also the Emeritus Woodruff Professor of New Testament and Christian Origins at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. We're here to talk today with Luke about his memoir, The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. My talk with Luke is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Luke, Timothy Johnson, thanks for being here at the Commonweal Podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So in the preface to your memoir, you admit to some trepidation about even undertaking the process. You ask... Why have I undertaken this risk of revealing my inner narcissist? So maybe I'll turn the question back on you. Why did you decide to write a memoir? And why in particular from the perspective of a scholar?
1: I thought that being a scholar is a fairly unknown territory for very many people, including my family. I realized that if my family were asked, what do I do? They would have no idea. Okay, he's retired. What has he retired from? Teaching. They had very little clue as to what made up my life. So I wanted to communicate, not only to my family, but perhaps generally, something beyond the stereotypes of scholars as helium-headed dunces who can't tie their shoelaces. And also, I thought, maybe I can communicate something of how scholarship has changed over the 50 years that I practiced it, because it really has fundamentally changed in very important ways. So I'm hoping not simply to add on about my life, but also to communicate something about uh, a vocation, which is peculiar, and yet also, I think,
0: important. Mm. And you do get to some of those questions about the nature of scholarship later in the memoir, and we'll take up some of those questions soon. But I want to, talk a little bit about some of what else informs the book. You reveal some significant biographical details about yourself. And without necessarily having to go too deeply into it, I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners some of the life-changing events of your childhood and how these came to bring you eventually as an adolescent to seminary training in Covington, Louisiana.
1: Yes, um, I start with my childhood in northern Wisconsin, the youngest child of a widow who had six children and being raised in relative poverty. I say relative because everybody was poor in northern Wisconsin in the early 1940s. And then dramatically, my life changed with the death of my mother and becoming a genuine orphan. I never knew my father. My mother died when I was 11. And I moved to Jackson, Mississippi from northern Wisconsin. Right in the era of Ross Barnett and the Citizens Council, I moved to Jackson the summer that Emmett Till was lynched. And I left Jackson the summer that Medgar Evers was assassinated. So it was for somebody who had never seen a person of color in his first 11 years of his life to be plunged into the death throes of segregation in Jackson, Mississippi, in the mid-50s was traumatic. More positively, it was the first time that I ever went to a Catholic school and had the good fortune of having two dynamite female teachers, especially Sister Paulinas Oaks, who was my football coach as well as my eighth grade teacher, and saw in me something that potentially had a vocation for the priesthood. And so I was groomed. I gladly admit I was groomed by her and the parish priests to think about going to the seminary, which I did at the age of 13. Partly, I think, to get out of the strange household to which I had to move my, the household of my oldest brother and his Mississippi wife. So at the age of 13, thinking that the seminary was going to be a sort of summer camp experience. I went to study with the Benedictine monks in Covington, Louisiana, and was so blessed to be able to spend the next 15 years of my life in that place. A deeply humane existence among the world's most hospitable people Next, to Methodists,
0: uh, the, the, the Benedictine monks. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, though, too, because you introduced this section by writing, My Long Loneliness Had Begun, and I'm curious as to why you characterized it this way.
1: I've always been haunted by Dorothy Day's great book. A friend and, and I got Dorothy Day to come speak to us in the seminary. Shortly after John Kennedy was elected, I think that phrase has always haunted me. And what I meant by it was I lost not only my parents, I also lost my sibling family. I lost my place, my culture. I was an alien and a sojourner from then on. So like many people, I'm not exceptional in this regard, like many folks who are orphans and lose homes, I had to create myself in a way that often is not necessary when you're enmeshed in a close family group and a given culture. So I was always adjusting to new cultures, new environments. And that's a lonely process, as is the life of scholarship, actually. Another phrase from a novel, The Loneliness of Long-Distance runner has always rung in my mind, and that is to set yourself on a path of great endeavor. always results in a kind of a loneliness. Nobody else quite understands why you're doing this. And it's very difficult, for example, to go home again once you have set off on that path. So I think my long loneliness stopped when I met joy and Received her love and married, and that I was not that lonely for 47 years until she died a couple of four years. Mm -hmm. Loneliness is very good for writing poetry. I think solitude and sorrow are the two
0: prerequisites for actually writing good poetry. You talk a lot about the amount of reading you did as a young person. You said a voracious reader, not only of philosophy and theology but also fiction and and poetry. And I'm wondering if you could speak about some of the authors and works that had a significant effect on you and and maybe also talk about how the novels and fiction writers you read, and I guess the poets as well, were an essential part of your development as a scholar. I mean, you you characterize it as reading for fun and reading for leisure, but you also say it was extremely important. It was extremely important.
1: And I think later in the book, I talk about the importance of imagination for the scholar. And This is how imagination is formed, by reading imaginative work. There's nothing quite so ludicrous as a biblical scholar trying to do literary criticism of the Gospels who's never read a novel, who who doesn't understand how fiction works. So very early on, of course, I I gobbled up all of Chesterton and Belloc and P.G. Wodehouse and all of those bright and funny British authors that fed my mind. And I came across Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. And Mortimer Adler, he's one of those great pseudo intellectuals of the 50s, right, to the founder of the Great Book series and all of that sort of thing. And so I took it all very seriously. And these are the 10 greatest novels, right? Huckleberry Finn, Madame Bovary, Pride and Prejudice, and of course, Diligent. Uh, autodidact that I was, I sat down and read all of these people and then moved on to Faulkner and Hemingway and Fitzgerald and all the rest. And so I've read novels my whole life and continue as so to do. And I have found that, it, as you suggest, it is much more than entertainment. It is a way of feeding a certain organ, which otherwise can just dry up. And that organ is called imagination. It's fantasy. It's the ability to come at reality obliquely. It is to be able to play outside the box or outside the lines. I found that both poetry and fiction gave me something, fed me in a way that nothing else did. I remember my brother one time when we were both in the seminary for a time. And he said, don't you think that reading the way you do is a form of escape? And I said, yes. And that's the point.
0: (laughs) So we run a portion of your memoir in the February issue of Commonweal. And in that excerpt, you note that you were the only novice to enter St. Joseph's Abbey in 1963. You say, perhaps an indication of the monastic lean years that were to come. I suspect, this wasn't how you thought of it right at that moment, although maybe I'm wrong. But over the course of the 1960s, were you becoming more alert to the shifts in the church and American Catholicism that were taking place? I mean, what's your recollection of how Vatican II and overall cultural shifts were affecting you and your plans at this time? Oh, I wouldn't be so bold to say that I had a plan.
1: But nevertheless, no, I was instantly aware because it wasn't simply I was the only novice. Some of my favorite older monks left the very summer that I entered the monastery. It was that period, uh, it was the nadir of religious life in America. When the sign said, the last one, out, will turn out the lights, right, or lock the door, more monks were leaving than were coming in. So I was aware of a kind of a survival mode in this existence and that how perilous it was and how fragile it was. And that was one of the things that tended to make me more conservative than I might have been. I didn't take structures and systems for granted. I I saw that they could easily disappear. So in the memoir, I go through a number of things that were happening in the United States at that time. The emergence of Catholicism into the secular reality with John F. Kennedy, the preoccupation with sexuality, the growth in psychological jargon and fulfillment, the challenge to celibacy. And of course, the Vatican Council was happening at the very time I entered, and the entire nine and a half years I spent as a monk was dominated by issues of renewal. How do we carry out the renewal? The first was the liturgical renewal and the mass celebrated, concelebrated in English, the, fine, the divine office being said in English, and then other protocols of the monastic life, clothing, practices, and so forth. All of this was under negotiation. All of it created stress and all of it made the monastic life far from the haven of peace and tranquility
0: that I had imagined it to be when I entered. So we get to the early 1970s and you are now at Yale Divinity School and you began what you call your persistent pattern of writing and publishing in every direction at every level. And you say that there was method in this madness, even if it wasn't always apparent to the casual observer. Can you Talk about this impulse to write and how you came to see how jobs of work, as you put it, jobs of work and works of love came to overlap for you.
1: Writing is something that you have to constantly do in order to be good at. It's, you know, like scholars who write one book and think they're done would be thought odd by brain surgeons who want to do 10 surgeries a day because they get better at it. You get good at it. So reading great literature helps form a good style, but writing always helps as well. So writing encyclopedia articles, you know, Hans Kuhn in 400 words, Kingdom of God in 1,000 words, it helps convince one that everything can appear on a matchbox, right? It is possible to express things succinctly. The other part of this is that trying to be a disciple, trying to live according to the obedience of faith, I have always thought that it's not for me to determine whether a project is important or not. I always say yes, unless I must say no. And thus, I've always been open to every sort of invitation. So those invitations, could you write an encyclopedia article? Could you do this thing I tended to call jobs of work. That is, I did them because somebody asked me to, because I could make a buck, because I could get the book that I was reviewing, and I didn't have money to buy books. Those I called jobs of work, and they helped keep you afloat. But alongside of those were things I called works of love. And these are the kinds of persistent itches that I needed to scratch over the years. And the most all-encompassing one, is what I have thought of as an ecclesial hermeneutics, a fancy way of saying, how can the church develop the practices of discernment within communities that can lead to better and more righteous decision-making? Go back to my experience as a monk. We young monks were the black shirts who wanted to bring about reform and saw the older monks, the conservatives, as enemies. And so we had history on our side, and by God, we were going to burn the books if necessary. We may have been right, but we weren't righteous, and we didn't decide righteously. And so much of my work over the subsequent 50 years, in effect, was an act of repentance, uh, a sort of saying what grievous harm we did to those old monks. We didn't care about how they had experienced God. We didn't care about how the rosary fed their life in devotion. Ow. out. So I have thought that there must be a better way. And so many of my books float around that particular topic.
0: That's my work of love. My conversation with Timothy Johnson will continue in just a minute. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together a group of Russell Berry Fellows to study in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, known as the Angelicum. They are to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one academic year from October to June. They take classes in Ecumenism and Dialogue, Judaism, and Islam. They travel to Israel for 10 days to study at the Shalom Hartman Institute and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land, and they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. If you're interested, you can register for an informative webinar and submit your application for the Fellowship Program at the Angelicum by April 25, 2022. For more information, visit iie.eu slash That's spelled B-E-R-R-I-E. So I want to uh, turn to a portion of the memoir. It's, it's rel- relatively late in the book, but it was a part that I was really found myself interested, where you lay out what you call a scholar's virtues. Some of these, you say, are more moral virtues and some are intellectual virtues, including imagination. So maybe we can get back to this discussion of imagination that you, we began a bit earlier. What do you define as imagination and why do you take care to cite this as a virtue? It's an intellectual virtue, right? So that If we follow Aristotle, it's
1: a a form of capacity that can be developed and become more and more excellent along the way. And, And one reason why I emphasize this is because imagination is one of the epistemological categories that were banished to the dungeon in the Enlightenment. Everything is rationality, everything is empirical verification, everything is fact. And imagination is the capacity to enter into a world that is not totally defined by fact, is not totally defined by empirical verification. A psychotherapist, Helen Person, wrote a book called The Power of Fantasy. And she made the argument, which I totally buy, that none of us actually live on the basis of empirical data. We all are driven by fantasy. We imagine being a scholar, and so we become, we, we fantasize being the editor of Common Wheel, And so eventually that happens, right? And on a bigger scale, we imagine something called education. Education is a complex set of things leading to practices, which makes that imagination real. Space travel began in imagination with H.G. Wells, right? And you had to imagine getting to the moon before astrophysics could get on the job. Einstein imagined relativity by watching the trains come in at at his office. So imagination is this, and it's so lacking (laughs) among scholars in my guild, who seem to always color within the lines, right? Or paint by colors or paint by numbers. And yet imagination is liberating to the mind and enables it to go places that otherwise might
0: not have gone. So maybe I could ask about now the moral virtues that you list uh, for necessary to being a scholar. And, you know, you include courage, ambition, discipline, and persistence as all being necessary. I think these seem sensible enough but there's some others that might not seem as obvious. One of the moral virtues you list is detachment, and another is contentment. Why do you include these two? And I guess, again, I'll ask, what exactly do you mean by these terms in this context? They are sort of odd,
1: but I, I begin my discussion of the virtues by saying that what I want to describe as the sort of excellent scholar is somebody who has what might be called passionate detachment, and This, of course, has biblical basis that on one side, one is driven by fantasy and desire and hard work and energy and curiosity and courage. But those tendencies by themselves can become idolatrous. They can become, in fact, distorted if all we have is the tendency toward. So detachment enables us to grasp that this is just a game. Scholarship is a game. It's a serious game, but it's not an ultimate game. Uh, Twenty years from now, nobody will care whose italics it is in my book. So detachment is the enemy, as is contentment, is the enemy of obsessive compulsiveness and perfectionism. One destructive tendency among academics is a form of perfectionism, which leads them to produce one tiny little term during their career and then say, well, that's enough. You know, it's perfect. It's well-formed, right? I needn't do anything else. So go back to this notion of writing everything in every direction. That is a function of detachment and contentment. Play the game, put the pieces in play, see if anybody picks them
0: up and plays in return, and you've done your job. I hope that's clarified. I think it's uh, exceptionally clarifying, and I think it, it has wider application. And and and. Listeners should think about it in terms of a number of uh, disciplines and pursuits. And uh, so you talk about sort of remember the fun part of being a scholar. And, and at the end of your book, you do admit to the risk of placing so much stress on the arduous aspects of the scholarly life, at risk of omitting the most important thing the simple pleasure, fun, and even joy that scholars take in their activities. And that includes teaching. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a, a bit about this aspect. In your life as a scholar, the teaching part of it, which you say can be a kind of addiction, but one with no bad side effects.
1: Yeah, it's teaching is great. It's hard to do it well. is hard. I went back and taught this semester as a visiting professor at Cambridge. I taught one seminar for a semester, and I thought, "Boy, this is fun." And then I thought, "Boy, I'm glad I retired six years ago." It requires huge amounts of energy. Devotion, ability to correct as a form of social justice. But there is nothing so intoxicating as seeing students move from lethargy to enthusiasm, to see their eyes light up when they actually understand something, to see them want to learn more, to actually see them want to become scholars and see some of them succeed in becoming very significant scholars. All of this is a form of parenting on lease time. Yeah, it's sort of like rent a puppy. You work with these students and you work in a quasi-parental fashion, and there's great joy in that. But then somebody else has to pick up the mess.
0: So I'm going to ask this uh, final question. It might be, I think, given the conversation we've been having, it might be a good place to end. And that's with talking about the title of your memoir, The Mind in Another Place. I, I found it very evocative title. And I'm wondering how you came to apply it to your life as a scholar.
1: I think that's part of what became obvious to me, that when I was in a room with other people, I was there with them, but I was also somewhere else. I was always writing. I was always thinking. I was always in another place. It didn't mean That I wasn't present or that I my mind was not active and engaged with other activities, I began to think of it as almost like being an underground agent, that you're under deep cover, you're with other people and so forth. But as a scholar, even when you're teaching, as a scholar, you're thinking, How can I use this? Where does this go? And so on. To use Epicurus's language, it's a garden. It's your own private garden that you're always tending. And gardeners are always thinking about those roses and when they're going to come up and how they need uh, weeding and so forth. And real scholars, I think, are the same way. Their mind is present to other things. I know how to tie my shoes. I, I can find my car keys. But I'm always writing. I'm never not writing, or thinking, or planning. And I think that's
0: what I mean. Luke Timothy Johnson, thank you so much for being here at the Commonwealth podcast today. Thank you for having me. Luke Timothy Johnson's memoir is The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. It's published by Erdman's and it'll be available in late March. We ran an excerpt of the memoir in our February issue of Commonwealth. You can also find a version of that on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by assistant editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.